Welcome to the Choose You Now podcast. I'm your host, Juliana Hever. Today, I am thrilled to introduce my guest, Dr. Joel Furman. He's a board-certified family physician and nutritional researcher who specializes in preventing and reversing disease through nutritional and natural methods. He's the president of the Nutritional Research Foundation and author of seven New York Times bestsellers, Eat for Life, Eat to Live, The End of Diabetes, The End of Dieting, The End of Heart Disease, Super Immunity, and the Eat to Live Cookbook. Dr. Furman is also on faculty of Northern Arizona University Health Science Division. As one of the country's leading experts in nutritional and natural healing, he has appeared on hundreds of radio and television shows, including The Dr. Oz Show, Live with Kelly, Fox, CNN, Today, Good Morning America, the Discovery Channel, and Food Network, and I'll insert he was also on What Would Juliana Do? <laughs> His own PBS television programs directly address the crisis of obesity and chronic disease plaguing America and has raised over $70 million to help support PBS stations nationwide. Dr. Furman also operates the Eat to Live Retreat in San Diego, where people come from all over the world to recover their health. To learn more, visit drfurman.com, a great resource to make healthful eating taste delicious and be easy. He is the quintessential role model for choosing you now, and here he offers some advice on how you can do so too. So I'm so excited to have you here, Dr. Furman. We have been in all sorts of interesting situations over the years where we've I've interviewed you for my film. We did a film together. We've been on panels and different conferences together. But today I want to talk about something slightly different, not exactly the crux of your expertise, but more of the background, because kind of the the idea behind this podcast is about choosing you now. And I can't think of a better role model for doing just that. You're just this man who walks around with such a joie de vivre. You are always, you know, so positive. You're an amazing physician and author and athlete and gardener and husband. I mean, you've got it all. You're one of those kind of people. And so I would love to hear your story. I, I would love to start with basically how you chose you. And the first thing I think of, I would love to hear this from you, is honestly one of my favorite of, I don't know how many books you've written so far, so many, but one of my favorites of your books was um, Fasting and Eating for Health, which is all the way from, what is that, 1998? You're so yeah, on top of things. Yeah. yeah, you're just, you're so on top of things. Like you just define things before anyone sees them. And you were talking about fasting in 1998. So if you don't mind, I just wanted to just share part of the intro of that book is where you talk about this 20 year old world-class athlete and Olympic ice skating hopeful who suffered a severe injury to his leg. And he was ranked among the top two in the country in his event. The U.S. Olympic Committee encouraged him to seek treatment by one of the country's leading orthopedic surgeons. And of course, the doctor wanted to try experimental surgery. And you, you, that, that athlete was just really not doing very well, but remembered that his father had restored his health by fasting. And you gave it a shot and fasted for 46 days. And then in over a year, placed third in the world professional figure skating championship. So is that the moment you chose medicine or tell us a little bit about that? No, it's not really the moment I chose medicine. Um, but anyway, um, yes, I, I remember pretty vividly. Uh, see, I had a heel injury, a very, a very severe heel injury when I was already at the second ranked 
um, pair team in the United States came in second in 1973. The number one team had retired, Mark and Melissa Militano. So we were number one ranked in the country at the time. So all I had to do was basically show up and could have gotten the national title. And I got hurt and couldn't walk for a while. I kept trying to get back on the ice to skate to get back, thinking my heel would get better, but it it kept getting worse. Um, but anyway, I remember I was in um, the Olympic Committee sent me to um, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and the doctor was Joe Namath's doctor of the Jets, and he was name was Doctor Nicholas. And after in the hospital, I'm you know doing weightlifting in the hospital bed and sit ups and doing you know trying to stay in shape while I'm in the hospital, waiting there in the hospital. He'd come in there and kind of torture me a little bit every day, and then finally the nurse comes in and says to me, "Oh, here you have to take these medications." I said, "What am I taking medications for? I don't take medications." And she said, because he's doing surgery on you tomorrow. And I said, oh, he's doing surgery on me tomorrow without discussing it with me first? (laughs) This is the the audacity and the egotistical um, of of doctors in those days where he's decided to do surgery on his own without discussing it with me. Um, And when he saw, I said, we'll have the doctor discuss what his his plan is. So he came into the room and described to me that he was going to lacerate the area with a scalpel like a a tic-tac-toe board because if we break down the tissue there, it'll facilitate faster healing by tearing it apart a little bit. He was going to use me as a guinea pig. I asked him, maybe, how many times have you done this with people? You know, um, So I, I was just another guinea pig to him. Um, of course, I left the hospital you know, with, with him um, threatening, you may not walk again You know, if you don't do this. This is, this is how I left the hospital and from this famous doctor. Um, but kind of interesting. Um, then I... Um, thought I might go on a fast. So I fasted 10 days at home while I was still going to NYU on crutches. And since it didn't seem to get better, I, um, no, I fasted, yeah, 10 days. And then I ate for a week and then went down to Texas to fast at Dr. Shelton's health school. And I fasted 36 days more there. And they almost killed me there. I mean, there was nobody, it was, you know, they fasted me so long to the point of near death. And I think that it's a miracle I even survived that experience. Um, but anyway, um, I, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about this. It's kind of interesting to look at the past, you know, from six, from 50 years ago or something, but I've gone through a lot of, um, and then of course, um, after the fast, weighing 86 pounds, um, fasting 36 day, more days on top of the 10 I fasted at home while going to school, I was down to like a Auschwitz victim of, of just looking like a chicken bone. It took me try, um, you know, more years to gain back my strength. I never really, I didn't make, didn't get back on the, in my physical conditioning in time for the 76 Olympics. So, um, because I couldn't gain my strength and, and, and stamina back fast enough. Um, but I did compete, obviously, as you mentioned, in the world professional championships in, in later in 1976 after the Olympics and came in third. And, you know, so I was getting back in better shape to, but I, um, but of course my skating career, which was my major, um, driving force in my life back then was this was, you know, getting that injury was a big giant disappointment. But in retrospect, um, looking back at it, um, had I not gotten hurt, maybe I wouldn't have become a physician, wouldn't have been able to have the powerful effect I've had on so many millions of people and, and have had the, enjoyed such a great career. Um, so, you know, I'm, I've have had an interesting life after my um, career, after my skating um, after turning pro, and then I worked in my family's shoe business. My father had a chain of about 10 to 12 shoe stores. And then I decided to go back to medical school to take the postgraduate pre-medical course at the postgraduate pre-medical science courses at Columbia University. And then, of course, I went to medical school at the age of 29. 
It's amazing. And you really, so how did that process go? Because like I said, you've always been so ahead of the game, you know, with nutritarianism and G-bombs and toxic hunger. And again, the fasting, like these are things that people were not talking about. And part of Choose You Now is about having the courage to to look forward and uh, despite what everyone else says around you. You're right. You know, back then, it's funny because when I, I realized what I, I went to medical school with the specific intent to be a physician specializing in nutrition with the expectation that, you know, even though most people wouldn't want this type of care, it would be a niche um, that a lot of people would prefer this natural, these natural methods and afford them the unique opportunity to really get well, not just stay taking drugs the rest of their life. So I specialized in, you know, reversing diseases like psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and headaches and heart disease and diabetes. And I was doing that now for um, you know, almost 30, you know, more than 33 years. But the point is I'm making is that back then, um, it, you know, the, the other physicians and even um, areas, some people thought I was a little bit, you know, strange. A doctor would come back, a patient would come back and say, my doctor said, what are you going to eat carrot sticks and celery the rest of your life? How's that ever going to work? You know, things like that. But, but that's where I was encouraged. To, I realized that if I started writing books with scientific, with, with excellent scientific referencing, to tell people my think, my thought processes and how I come to these decisions and the evidence to support them, that it would be able to afford me the opportunity to um, practice without being so deviant from conventional medical care back then. Because there was a high risk of being sued or being put out or having your license taken away, you know, 35 years ago, should you practice outside of the realm of normal care and the, the criteria for which a doctor could be sued or be in trouble would be what you're doing is not consistent with the with the, your, the medical norm in the area in which you practice. So it's all about meeting medical norms and going lock and lock step with the with the way other physicians think and treat people. So I knew it was. Um, so I so back then I was very motivated to start, and I did feel a, a very um, a better better degree of efficacy knowing I had been writing down. In, in a book and making and making a book back then in 1996. Of course, I was in practice, you know, for decades before that even. But, um, but I was obviously, you know, spent much of my career working 100 hours a week, seeing people, seeing patients all day long, you know, one after another, after another, after another. And I, of course, working very hard, but tremendous amount of also personal um, reward, satisfaction, watching people able to get well and tra- and you know, transition and make tremendous health recoveries that were that could be considered miraculous. Right. Because that's not what you were taught in medical school. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, what did you see? What was, what was the most surprising? Tell us, can you share some of that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, cause there were certain cases that would surprise you, the doctor, as well as the patient, you know? So one girl, for example, was a teenage girl who was on the national renal transplant list waiting for a new kidney. She had lupus and lupus nephritis with a creatinine of 4.2, which means that her kidney is almost totally gone. Um, and, and I didn't have any really that much hope that she could come back to be normal again. Um, and the conventional medical care wasn't, was not helping her. They were just trying to get her a new kidney. But she, but obviously she got completely well. Her creatinine went to 0.0 to 0.8. It went completely normal, shocking me. Um, and of course, you know, encouraged me to take care on a lot of lupus patients with severe illnesses, with a lot of people with, with autoimmune nephritis and, and severe autoimmune conditions that made complete recoveries, including some people with bleeding ulcerative colitis. I remember one man who was having about 15 bloody bowel wounds a day 
And when he was hospitalized, they wanted to remove his colon and take his colon out and replace it with a bag. And I said, you know what? They have you not eating in the hospital. You're on steroids. They're giving you IV fluid. And you're not, and your bleeding is starting to ease back. So why don't, instead of going to have the surgery, why don't you come in to live in my house for a couple, for a couple of months and see if I can help you? So we can always do the surgery down the road. And he, this guy lived with me. And I, I remember he fa- I fasted him in my house for another 10 or 15 days without the steroids, without the medications, and then fed him just like steamed zucchini like for, for, for almost a week. And then I gave him like new potatoes mixed into a slurry with cauliflower and water. And I gradually got him back to food after a couple of weeks and of course facilitated him gradually on cooked juices. And then, and so I've obviously been working with these people along, had a lot of experience working with very difficult cases. And of course, you know, watching him make a recovery and not having his colon removed was, was rewarding. And of course I took care of a lot of people that had chronic headache syndrome so severe that they, um, you know, that they, one girl, she missed two years of school. She had to be in bed for two years and she was hospitalized in Brigham Young Hospital in Boston with on, on, um, experimental drugs for her chronic daily headache syndrome. So getting a lot of these severe headache patients well was a, was a huge satisfactory and rewarding experience. And then of course, you know, there's the people with, with cancers, you know, which I wrote about a lot in my books. I put some of those cases, for example, um, you know, I've, Pam Swallow, I can use the real name because I have permission to use their names. I put it in my books. Um, is a person who had um, ovarian cancer in 1997. What is this? This is um, 23, it's 20, yeah, about 24 years later, she was given three months to live with four liters of ovarian cancer, um, with cancer fluid occupying her lung and had to have four liters of fluid extracted from her lung with a, with a, with a needle. And of wow. course, she's, she's doing well. And I had another woman with, I have other women with, with advanced cancers. For example, one woman had metastatic breast cancer to her bones that cl- completely cleared. Her name was Lee. And another woman, Pam Swallow, who had um, stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that got completely, that watched it completely get reverse and get well. So I, you know, targeted and had a lot of experience where, and also so many people who are, had failure to thrive on vegan diets being able to have that experience working with a lot of people in the vegan community. Cause back then in those days there were, the vegan community was extremely small. There was no yeah. plant-based diets out there. It was just the, the, the American vegan society in Malaga, New Jersey and the American natural hygiene society where, where I was pretty much the medical doctor where a lot of these people came to see me when they developed problems. And I was able to through blood work and, and facilitating modifications of working with, um, of course, to get a better understanding of what the, what the issues were. And obviously, um, I think that um, uniquely, I've had a unique experience for decades of caring for a lot of people with using, with developing disease reversal protocols and also obviously um, being able to um, be the detective to seek out and ferret out and be able to solve issues that people had, especially issues people had that were eating, that were eating that were considered to be a super healthy diet too. So it's basically a confluence of experience and digging deeper because it was there were no studies kind of paving the way for you, like you were paving the way. And so it, were you using some intuition or you were just using just all of that experience? How do you think your thought process was? Yeah, yes, th- that's correct. But of course, tremendous amount of reading and, and reviewing what research and we always did have. It's not like we have research now that's and it wasn't back some week, there wasn't research back then. It was very extensive. We didn't have like, 
files and the internet back then, you know, with so much to be able to search as well. But I, I remember I had um, rooms and rooms of file cabinets with articles that I had in them on very, you know, of searching and reading and, 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 and thousands and hundreds of books. And, you know, I think that over my career, I've probably gone through, you know, maybe, you know, 50 to 100,000 scientific journal articles ferreting out the most critical ones that, that supplied the, the most information. Um, and even back then, you know, even in even in the nineteen seventies, you had the, um, it was understandable in the scientific literature that inflammation was intimately intertwined with the process of repair. And it says in Robin, the book Robinson Cotran that all the pathology book that medical students read that mm-hmm. um, that inflammation serves to wall off and dilute and remove injurious agents that um, that otherwise could he had the processes to he. Um, is result is to try to heal and reconstitute damaged tissue. The point I'm making right now is that even back then we realized the body had this power to miraculously heal itself and everything the body does, including the expression of symptoms of disease are in its own best interest. And some things that we see as disease that we suppress with steroids, like an asthmatic attack, the, you know, and we, we push it back in and we feel better with a steroid or with a drug but we're not recognizing that the asthma attack itself, the inflammation itself, is an effort of the body sets into motion to try to remove the injurious agents that settle into the tissues. So it's, in other words, there was the scientific underlying basis of this methodology that just needed to be ferreted out and, and worked out. So people would say, well, look, you have to, you can't suppress the headache. We have to remove the cause, and if it worsens for for a couple of weeks, that's necessary to get to the point, the end of the rainbow. You're going to get well. It's okay for your, you know. So we, in other words, it's okay to feel fatigued or worse temporarily as your body mobilizes more metabolic waste. So the whole concept of the self reparative effect, and the other, and that fact that the addictive nature of toxic metabolites would co- and, and withdrawal can cause people to temporarily feel worse. And the experience was then, of course, those theories were then um, corroborated with my experience when you when people could, were coming off sugar and eating and un, went to a super healthy diet, they of course would feel worse, not better. And we would, and of course, when you utilize these um, principles, it, it, we got results. It's extraordinary. The body is absolutely extraordinary and the synergy and all that. And when left alone, it often heals itself. That's such a powerful message that we've gotten so far away from. And I'm so glad that you continue to promote that and teach that and write about it. And now you're doing this in you're you're having people like you did with that that man that had the colon cancer in your home. <laughs> and now you have in, in the center that you have now, right? Yes, I have the Eat to Live Retreat Center in San Diego, which is just the most beautiful and um, fantastic environment for people to come and heal under my care. But you know, um, I've been doing this most of my career. When I when my kids were young, I remember I had people at, on, on beds in my basement in, in New Jersey. It's funny. I had, oh, wow. I remember when my daughters who are now in their mid 20s, well, my daughters are 27, 29, 33, but when my daughters were young at like two and three years old, they used to be in the beds with the, with the patients in my basement and in the rooms, you know what I mean? Downstairs. And, and, wow. and the person, that person with colitis fasted in my room in Kara's room before she was born. That used to be her <laughs> room. But, um, but the point I'm making right now is, and then I rented an old mansion in um, an old rental mansion that my, um, with many people with guests would come back and the, you know, so I knew, um, you, you could get more effective results when you could keep people long-term. And then I had a decade where I, you know, was busy, um, writing and doing PBS and all that stuff. But 
um, I've always in the back of my mind recognized that I left a void in that there's so many people who learn the information, want to change their life, want to get rid of their medical problems, but don't seem to have the right home environment or the fortitude to, do, to make the necessary changes because of food addiction, emotional eating, or whatever the reasons. And, but when you, when you have a enforced, punitive enforced abstinence, along with the right type of, you could say, counseling for emotional eating, food addiction, and of course, life's challenges and how to be happy. And when you put all that together with learning how to make the food taste great, and it takes, sometimes it does just take a couple, two to three months for people to, because my experience has been that, yeah, a lot of people can read a book, watch videos, get information, make changes. And a lot of people, millions of people have done that. But for some people, it's only when they really are able to live it and for a long enough period of time that they can free themselves of the of that illicit and dangerous love affair they have with unhealthy eating and able to sustain the change for the rest of their life with the right end. Of course, people, as you know, taste buds change and their food preferences change and they get, they learn to love eating this way. And it, it just takes time, but to get to the, to get to those people and to assure them to have somebody with my, with my experience and being able to tweak what they're doing to maximize, maximize its effectiveness for their particular medical conditions or crises really can make um, gives me much more ability to obviously have better outcomes. So I want to get back to you, but first I want to ask you, that was a perfect segue to ask you what you would suggest to your, not just your audience and patients and fans, whatever, everyone that's around you, like, what would you say to someone that really wants to make a change, but they're like, what's the best way to stay? Where do they start? They may... They they have to have the want. They have to have the why. But what what would you say to them that would be like how to start, how to get started, how to dive in? What would you suggest? I've always suggested that they first have to become educated. If they don't, that's and so if they don't learn and know the in depth of the reasons for them doing this and the science that supports it, they're usually going to fail because they otherwise they're just. Um, having a belief system and and they and since they're not going to feel better since it's difficult since people are going to give them a hard time with being different if they don't learn why they're doing this you know when i wrote eat to live in 2002 and 2003 published in 2004 i wrote right in the first chapter of the book don't change your diet right yet, right now don't think about what you're eating and and right now Underline, use a marker and read the book and understand the science. And don't, don't jump over to the recipes and start following the diet. Right now, focus on learning this information thoroughly. Because my experience has been that people who learn it, who, who are become learned and educated in the, in the science behind it are, have the best probability of doing it. And my most recent book, of course, is Eat for, um, is Eat for Life. And the Eat for Life book, of course, um, has more than 2,000 medical references, but it's simplified so people can understand it. And it's summarized you know, with a little like clip note version, cliff note version in each chapter so they can get the most important things I want them to learn before they move on to the next step. And because there's so much questioning and confusion and disagreements and controversies that unless a person is armed with information and, and why one study has, a, has more credence than another, and you actually know how to interpret a claim a person makes with some degree of scientific integrity. Unless you are educated, it's very hard 
to be to make the right choices. So as you know, so many people are misinformed and miseducated and just believe things, whether it's, you know, politics or religion or anything else, they they come to a uh, something they want to believe, and then they try to collect information that supports their um, belief system. And I don't want people, I want to get rid of that way of thinking. And I want to encourage people to start with a clean slate. And, you know, it's funny because when people come to see me as a patient, they sit across the desk and I say, well, look, we can get rid of your diabetes and your blood pressure in, in within a few months easily, but do you want to just lose some weight or you want to totally get well and, and get, you know, get completely off these drugs and back to as healthy as possible. You want to just, you know, you're really ready, ready to jump in and do this a hundred percent. And they go, yeah, yeah. I want to do it a hundred percent. I want to get totally well. I want to jump. I want to drop the total 50 pounds in the next three months. I want to be totally well again. So I say, well then, okay, then don't think about what you want to eat and what you feel like eating or what you think you should eat or what you think is healthiest to eat or what you learned you should eat or what you, or what you know you should eat. So forget about all that stuff. Just eat what I tell, just, I want you to eat what I tell you to eat exactly what I tell you to eat. And don't tell, don't decide if you like it or not either. Because if you're going to test the science and see if it really works for you to drop 50 pounds in three months and get off all your drugs, you have to do really what I'm expecting to do. But I'll promise you that you're going to love eating this way and you'll like it eventually, but not the first month. You've got to give me time. So, you could, so we can learn the recipes and you could trade and retrain your taste buds and it can give you time so you can study this information. So by the time I see you again in a few weeks, you've finished reading all the science that supports this and then we can have a decision and then we can have a discussion about why and how and, and you know, and so, you know, so the answer to your question is um, educate the right type of nutritional education and that's, be, and then because of my my um, experience in this field and feeling that the education people have and, and how to think about gaining that education is so critical. That's why I've spent most of my career writing books and putting together all the science in an unbiased and, and you could say uh, making sure it's well corroborated and this one study corroborates another so people could read it and feel that there's no predetermined agenda that's trying to, that this is, that they can get the um, uh, information that has no um, that they can trust information they can trust and feel right. good about. Right. And you're arming them with information so that they are like, they could go out there because once, no matter what, when you start talking about it out there with other people, everyone's got an idea. Everyone eats, everyone has an opinion about food. And it's so easy to succumb to these little ideas, these people planting seeds. So I, I love that about focusing on education. Um, and, and of course the, the science substantiates itself and there's a preponderance of evidence now to go back to. It's, it's, it's really exciting times. Um, and so back to you. So with you, you're working with so many people who desperately need your expertise and attention. You are, you know, you have a family, you're writing, you're, you're so busy, you're guarding, you're doing all these things. What do you do? Who do you turn to for support? What do you do to stay grounded? I think what, what I, I turned to in the past when I was so busy was being able to get out there and exercise and do something because I always love exercising and sports. So I think going out and playing tennis or going skiing or going for a bike ride or, or hiking in the mountains or going to the gym, it just was my way of breaking up the, um, the, the constant desk work and study and studious nature of my job. And, you know, so I think that I mostly, um, use exercise, but now that I've got getting older, and I have more time for, you know, more things I really enjoy, like gardening or like maybe now I, I have a little time to do a little meditating or more hiking in the woods or more going to the, you know, um, walking on the beach or something. So 
Um, right now, this last six months, I've had a little more time to myself and I'm actually sleeping more hours because I think I've underslept most of my life trying to get this work done. You know, but, I bet. But, and all I've done differently now, even though I'm doing my work, it's just that I'm not writing books anymore. It was writing the books that occupied so much of my hours and my time, you know, 24 seven, you know, all day and all night, weekends, holidays, anything, always trying to get in and read and meet book deadlines and stuff. So now that I've um, finished, I've um, made the decision to stop writing books and just to have, and so of course my life right now, of course, is much less stressed and I can have more balance in my life. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm in the middle of a deadline right now as we speak. So that sounds amazing. What was, that's a big decision for you to stop writing um, books. You've done it all. (laughs) You've written them all. I've I've written like 12 to 14 books, whether you count booklets as books, so maybe like in 12 to 14 books. And obviously, um, you know, I've spent so much, so many hours working that I've think it now at 67 I'm it's good that I'm working three quarter time and not like but not twice as much as most people work you know what I mean oh for sure you've earned it absolutely so okay so then are you able now to shut it all off when you want quiet oh yeah I I mean I have a, such a um I'm so blessed that I have them um, that I'm able to you know garden and eat healthy and um, grow some of my food and have the time to you know exercise every day, for example, and the time to lie in bed an extra hour if I want to without having to use an alarm clock to run to work in time. So I'm, I'm, I'm very um, grateful that I can take that I'm not I'm under time pressure right now. And I'm choosing to do the work I enjoy doing, rather than being um, forced to cram it all in to meet, as you're saying, deadlines and, and, um, and, of, and all the um, obligations that, you, that require you to see patients all day and still try to write books till 12, write till 12 o'clock at midnight. And then go right up at six o'clock and go back to work again. You know what I mean? So it's given. So of course I'm at a different stage right now where I'm enjoying life more. Well, I'm so happy to hear that. So any advice just to close out um, for someone that maybe feels, you know, like they want to make a change or they need to make a change, but they don't feel like they can or deserve to. There's a lot of that when you kind of dig deeper into the mindset of a lot of these people. What advice would you give? As difficult and painful as it may be in the beginning, it manifests itself obviously with joy, happiness, and pleasure for the rest of your life. And those decades of pleasure are going to way overwhelm the few months of discomfort in making the change. So, whether, so the people just need to do what they have to do. To, and it's almost, especially with you know, the world becoming more polluted and, and cancer looming around us and the infections, you know, COVID's now, but if after COVID, some other infection that's going to come over and ravage people, you know, two years from now or five years from now, unless we take excellent care of our health, we can't possibly be happy and be secure in our health trajectory or feel good about our family's health and have, and feel our family is protected and live without fear. There's no way you could have a happy life and live without, with, with confidence and optimism for the future unless you take excellent care of your health and eat healthfully. There's no way you can do it because there's just too many obstacles and too many problems that are going to be thrown in your path if you don't. Yes, it's called well a, no, a no-brainer. People have no choice. They can't just expect not to have prop, serious problems that, of course, now that 2 million people have died of COVID and it's, you know, it's just um, it's a scary time, which I see largely as a nutritional issue because, I'm, I'm, of course, um, if people have excellent nutrition, they're slim, they're in great health, they're taking great eating super healthfully, they have nothing to fear from COVID. 
And right. so people are walking around afraid of their life. And the medical profession fosters this fear because obviously getting mammograms for breast cancer and colonoscopies for colon cancer and doctor visits and medical tests and constantly being medical probed and prodded and tested so they can treat you with more drugs um, isn't making these problems disappear, but it keeps people in constant fear and awareness that the body is going to break down and inevitably result in some life-threatening illness. That's because of the way they're eating. And once you stop that way of eating, you no longer have a necessity to have all that medical care, medical treatment, and fear, and living with fear of, of having some disaster strike you, which then eventually not only strikes you, but it strikes your family. And even if, you know, if you're still alive, your family becomes having to care for you, and their life becomes um, stressful and uncomfortable and, and because they're actually becoming your caretaker instead of enjoying their life. So it's, it's not only... Um, it's goodwill for your community and your family when you take great care of your health, as well as being goodwill for yourself and the only way to be to achieve true happiness. Well said. So you have to choose you now. You have to take care of yourself first so that you could be your best self for everyone around you. Exactly. Well, I can't thank you enough for being here, for all of your extraordinary work, for everything beautiful that you put into the world. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Furman. Oh, my pleasure. And it's so great to... Um, to be talking about this subject and to be and the, the great work you're doing reaching out to help people just wonderful to see thank you take care be well i love the idea of empowering yourself with information and the call to action that we must choose ourselves to experience health and wellness if you are inspired and enjoy the choose you now podcast please subscribe to the show rate and review us on itunes and send us an email with questions and comments at chooseyounowpodcast at gmail.com. For nutrition services and more information, visit me at plantbaseddietitian.com. I invite you to choose yourself now, and I'm signing off with lots of leafy green love.